invest in and follow principles. That has proved to be pretty successful. This landlord's gonna make almost two million bucks over the next 12 years for doing something one time. Mm -hmm. And that's like residual. This guy's got another seven retail spaces and he's got 10 stories of apartments about it. And I'm like, man, I'm on the wrong side of the coin, right? I need to own real estate, not brokerage. You start doing deals that are absolutely life-changing, like that puts you on the path for intergenerational wealth. Welcome to the Real Estate Home Runs Podcast. I am your host, Louis Van der Horst. This is a podcast for busy professionals who want to learn about passive income producing strategies that have helped others crush it in the real estate world. Whether you are a new or seasoned real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to the Real Estate Home Runs Podcast. This is episode number five. Our special guest today is Matt Piccini, who's had a lot of success in the multifamily real estate space. Matt is a managing partner of MJP Property Group. With over 15 years of experience, he has invested in over 5,000 apartment units and is primarily focused on acquiring and repositioning multifamily communities. In this interview, we will talk about project management and common mistakes that some people make in large apartment deal syndications. Welcome, Matt, to the show. Great to have you here. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get into today's topic, tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, where you're from, and then how you made your transition into uh, real estate. Yeah, well, it's a long story, but I'll give you the, the short version of it. Um, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and then I moved to New York City uh, for college. Actually, I went to a musical theater conservatory to become a performer. And I was, I was a professional uh, musical theater performer for about five years after graduation from that program. I was in like 15 productions throughout the United States and, and also uh, we did some that in, uh, international touring. But anyway, um, then I started to uh, dabble in the internet, right? So we're, we're in the mid nineties now and, and talking about sort of the big dot-com heyday. And um, I started, in between acting jobs, uh, doing some freelance HTML coding and things of that nature. And uh, one thing sort of led to another. And the next thing I know, a couple of years later, I had my own agency in New York City, uh, boutique agency doing website development. Um, fast forward several years later, the dot-com bubble burst. Uh, and uh, my company was fledgling along. And then like right around this, the time that 9-11 happened, um, things were just were pretty bleak in the city and uh showtime the cable channel um was a client of mine and they offered me a position to come in house so i actually went in house over at showtime was there for a number of years and then uh, really wanted to get back involved in in the robust sort of transactional website development a lot of those things those projects that were interesting to me were being done at the advertising agencies and that's when i really stepped into advertising agency world and uh, i had a whole career doing that uh, in New York, you know, I mean, my, my whole working time in New York was like over 18 years. And um, I kind of climbed the corporate ladder, if you will, um, working at all these different cool advertising agencies, managing larger and larger teams. Um, you know, by the end there, I was managing teams of, you know, 100 people or more for really big clients like Verizon or Visa, Coca-Cola, doing really cool interactive projects um, with all of those clients. And um, what happened was I, I got married during the time uh, and, and also during the time that I was sort of in corporate America, if you will, I, uh, I started doing real estate investment on the side as a hobby. 
So I did that on the side as a hobby for about 10 years. And what happened was my wife got a really cool job opportunity, but we were going to need to move to Miami, Florida for her to, to do that. And this was completely out of the blue. She got recruited for this. And uh, we took a look at it. It was a really good opportunity for her. And we decided to go ahead and make that leap. So I, I left uh, my busy corporate life in New York City and we moved down to Miami. And that's when I got involved in real estate full time. Um, and so we were in Miami for about two years when she got once again recruited completely out of the blue um, for an opportunity in Boston. So we moved to Boston, which is where we live now. We've been here for about three years. And um, I've been doing the real estate thing full time now for five years. So, you know, about 10 years part time and about five years full time now, um, over five years at this point. So okay. that's kind of the, the short version of it. I'm actually writing a book right now. I think I told awesome. you about this before last time we talked. And um, that will actually chronicles that entire time, that entire period of time and goes into detail with some fun um, humorous stories uh, and also hopefully some good lessons learned for, for people. Uh, my goal is to have the book ready uh, by the end of, of the year 2020, right? Then depending on what route we go for publication, it will probably be available three to six months after the book is completed, just okay. depending on sort of what route we go with the editing and the publishing and all of that kind of thing. Um, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be an interesting and real unique take on the real estate world based on, you know, the kind of very unique background yeah. that I have. In that journey, did you start with residential or you commercial? What was that like? Yeah, well, so for me, it all started, you know, with, I guess my first lessons learned were when I bought my first property that I lived in, right? My first primary residence. Um, and that's, that's where my book actually starts. And um, then uh, after that, I, I sold it shortly, you know, within a couple of years and, and, and made a nice profit. Um, so then I thought, oh, well, maybe I should be doing this. And that's when I started getting involved in it as a hobby. And that's when I bought my first like investment property that was not a primary residence. Um, okay. And was that, that was a, a one unit single or family single home family? that my, it, it, it's actually quite a saga. It's an entire second chapter of the book, but that <laughs> okay. is, um, it, it, it was initially, the initial intention was, for it to be um, a vacation home that I thought would be sort of a wise investment, but it wasn't bought like a, like someone might invest or underwrite an investment property uh -huh. um, that was, that was being bought solely for the purpose of rental. My initial intention when I bought the property uh, um, was that it was going to be something for me to, to own the, the land for time for quite a period of time and then maybe build on it. Um, but build on it as a second home, uh, a vacation home. You know, I lived in New York City, so to sort of get away from the city. And what happened was, as I was building it, um, it, it was slightly cost prohibitive to, to just own it and not to rent it out when there was clearly a rental market there. So my initial intention was to rent it part-time, but I never... I mean, it just ended up kept, I kept getting renters. <laughs> and so it ended up becoming like, 
it's also interesting because I met my wife at the time that we had, I had just gotten done completing building the house. And so um, her folks uh, also lived in Connecticut, but on the completely other side of the state, but they tend to travel a lot. So we could actually be able to use their home to get away. And mm -hmm. this was generating cash for it to, you know, renting it. So we, um, I ended up just, never really um yeah i mean i used it a little bit like here and there a couple of days a year but like not nothing really significant, significant um yeah and and then i got involved in sort of single family properties um i did some six some single uh single family fix and flips um i, I had bought a property um in in new york that then was a duplex so we were renting out one unit living in what basically doing what they're now calling a house hack right but I didn't yeah. even know that that existed back then. I don't know if that, that was a cool term or around. the buzzword. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, that was what I essentially was doing a house hack. Um, we lived there for, for a while. And then, um, so then I was doing the single families and uh, I bought some single family uh, turnkey properties. Like I said, I flipped some properties. Um, and, and then um, right around this time I was in Miami and this is when I started to learn about, the multifamily syndication. I always wanted to do multifamily and go bigger, but I thought mm -hmm. that I needed uh, a really, you know, multi-million dollar relative that I didn't know about to like die and leave me all this money or something. You know, like I didn't mm -hmm. know how, how do you buy a $10 million piece of property? Like I just, I didn't have that capital and I didn't even know how I would do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I found out about syndication. And so then I started delving deeper and deeper into what is the syndication thing? How does this model work? Started going to some conferences, and learning about it and found a mentor and, and sort of went from there and was passively investing for quite some time and also looking uh -huh. for a deal to actively uh, bring to the market. It took me two years to find my first deal that I felt really good about uh -huh. um, because the market was so competitive at the time. I mean, it still uh -huh. is, but, um, uh -huh. and I was a nobody. I had no... Uh, experience and no clout with any brokers or anything like that. So it took me a while to kind of break in um, to, to the market, but then kind of like once you get that first deal, the second one's a little bit easier and the third one becomes easier. So it starts to uh, become easier, I think, as, as you go along because you start to build a, a track record with your investors and credibility with the broker community. Um, uh -huh. and so, so anyway, that's, that's how I got involved in multifamily. And, you know, now I've got, um, you know, like over 5,000 doors that I'm invested in, but 75% of that portfolio are deals that I'm a passive investor in. So I continue to invest passively in real estate. Um, I think it's a great investment. Um, also the, the depreciation factor really helps out when, when we do have large gains on, on something that sells. Um. So 75% of my portfolio are passive investments and 25% of my portfolio are deals that I'm the lead sponsor on or, uh, or a sponsor on or deals that I, that I own. Um, I have some deals that I just own outright. So mm -hmm. um, that's my portfolio. And over time, I'm sure that that will change, you know, the, 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 the ratio of active to passive may, may change from, from one to the other. But I do enjoy uh, both aspects of the business. Did you find that um, that making that transition was right at the time when you did, or or 
maybe having that background and knowledge in residential helped you transition into multi or you feel like anyone can start in large apartments? Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I don't think that uh, multifamily syndication is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be honest, I'll be honest with you about that. I think that there are certain people who tend to do better in it than others. And mm-hmm. I think that having a good business background is important. You know, when I worked in the advertising agency, um, I, I agencies, there was many of them. I was managing very large projects for really big clients with multi-million dollars, tens of millions of dollars uh, in terms of budget. Mm-hmm. So I'm an expert at managing projects. I'm actually like a certified professional project manager from the PMI Institute, right? Like I, you know, yeah. and you have a test and everything, but I'm really good at making sure that things get done on time, on budget and at the highest quality possible. And so, you know, the great thing about multifamily is it can be a team sport. So you might not have that particular strong suit, um, project management, but maybe you team up with somebody like me who has that strong suit. There's different players that you can put on your team who have different skill sets. But um, I do think there are people who just aren't, um, you know, right for the business, uh, just don't have the skills or the training for it. And, and um I, I don't mean to be rude or discourage anybody, but, you know, you just have to make sure that you've got some good business sense and that you understand real estate. And I think you can get training for that. You know, there's a number of different opportunities to get training and mentorship and things like that, which can really help you. Um, and, um, you know, it's difficult. Now, in terms of do you need to start with single family and to go into multifamily? Absolutely not. Um, for a lot of people, I think there's a comfort level there. They're like, well, I want to start with doing a duplex. Yeah. I don't think that you need to do that. Um, the difference between doing like a duplex and doing a hundred unit property, there's a very big difference. Um, because once you get past five units, it's very different. The fundamentals are different. The way things are evaluated is different. The financing options are different. So you doing that duplex really doesn't give you like all the knowledge that you need to be able to get into a larger apartment building. You might be better off spending your time and your effort uh, investing passively in a deal with a very experienced syndicator who is very communicative with his investors. You can learn from that, or you might be better spending your money on some sort of educational thing. Um, Now, look, I had the background doing a number of real estate deals prior to the multifamily. That sure didn't hurt. I'm not saying it's not a good, it's not a good thing, but I just don't know that you have to start there because there Mm -hmm. are so many things that are different between the single uh, family world. And when I say single family world, I mean four units or less and then five units or more. But then when you get into that larger scale world, the difference between 10 units and 100 units and 1,000 units, really, it's just about adding zeros at the end at that point. You know, once you've gotten to a, a, a level where, you, you know, you're getting those commercial um, loans and, uh-huh. you know, you're, you're putting things together in, in, in this other format, looking at 
value like cap rates and NOI and you know valuations and all that other stuff. Once you've gotten to sort of that point, it really the number of units doesn't matter. I mean, the thing that changes with the number of units is um, the amount of people that you might need on your team. Um, I've found that on the larger properties, there tends to be more tasks and those tasks are larger and more time consuming. And I don't have like a staff of, of people that I've hired. I don't have a bunch of employees. So what I've done is I've teamed up with other um, syndicators uh, and we'll split those duties so that I can take care of investor relations and, and, you know, maybe asset management and they're going to take care of the financials and the rehab or, you know, like there's a lot of different things that, that can be going on. So I have found that when I'm doing a smaller property, I usually have like one or two other partners. And when I'm doing a larger property, I'll have more, you know, just sort of depending on the size of the property. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the difference, I think, between the, the, the smaller ones and, and, and the larger ones. That's good. Yeah. Um, it's not a one man uh, show. You need a team. <laughs> yeah. Multifamily is definitely yeah. a team sport. You know, yes. besides the other general partners, you know, I've, I've a whole mm-hmm. team that I've built in terms of like, you know, attorneys and mm-hmm. architects and property management companies, insurance brokers. I mean, the tax consultant, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And we, we work with water conservation teams. We have uh, cost segregation specialists. I mean, it, there really is a bit, and there's a bunch of vendors that we've been talking with who, who do things like uh, where you can get like, um, you know, cable television contracts or, or Wi-Fi, um, you know, for the entire community. So there's, there's lots of different people and players that you want to put on your team to, to become successful, I think. Absolutely. That's good. You mentioned project management and making sure that things go from the starting, from when they start to the finish line. Have you noticed any common mistakes that other people make or costly mistakes that um, you tend to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I just think that people that have teams that aren't really good uh, with that project management and does, you know, sometimes your property management company, if they're very good and they have all their ducks in a row, they can um, cover for that. But the deals that I've been involved in or that I've heard about that have not, that have had problems, um, all seem to stem around the value add and the rehab that's done. Um, and I've seen and I've invested passively in deals that have over-improved, um, spent too much money on those interior rehabs and then found that later on, much further down the line, that they could spend half as much on the rehab and still get the same amount of rent. Can you um, give any practical examples of that? or Can you think of any? Well, yeah. I mean, putting in granite countertops is the first one that I can think of. You know, everyone loves granite countertops and you think you want to put in granite countertops. And I say this as I'm looking at a deal right now, I'm evaluating a deal in which we may put in granite countertops because that particular submarket actually calls for it and it actually makes sense. But if I do that, it'll be the first multifamily deal that I've done the granite in. 
um, because most of the things that I've done is just not called for in that market. And, and we can do really nice refinishing of countertops and give them that sort of like faux granite finish. So they, they look like in a photo, they kind of look like granite, but they're really not. But they're nice and they look good and they're good quality and they're durable and they last. Um, but spending a few thousand dollars per unit, depending on how much counter space you have there, there's no return on that in most cases that I've found. So um, that's, that's one thing where I've seen people have gone wrong and also just min mismanaging the funds and not properly getting the documentation um, and timely getting it to their lender. A lot of the times um, I, I tend to do agency debt and a lot of the deals I invest in are agency debt. And so a lot of times when you're doing a Fannie loan, you can get some or maybe even all of the uh, rehab dollars baked into that loan, okay? Because that's part of the cost. And, and the way that the banks um, go ahead and structure that is they take that portion for the rehab and they put that into an escrow account to make sure that you, the lender, I mean, sorry, you, the, the operator, the borrower, um, doesn't actually like frivolously uh, you know, spend that money on something else, but you're actually using it to improve the property because they're using that as part of their valuation of the property. Like, oh, well, they're buying the property for a million dollars, but they're going to put a million dollars in the renovation. So the property is maybe worth two million. I, I'm making up numbers here, but I'm just saying they, they take that into account when they're appraising the property and how much they're going to lend you. So um, anyway, they, they escrow these rehab dollars, depending on how you've structured your deal. And you need to make sure that you're documenting everything, putting it together, sending it to the lender so that you can get those escrow dollars released. So, um, and I've seen things where people have lost like $300,000. Um, I, I just, I literally just heard of a story yesterday about somebody whose deal was going off the rails and they had switched management companies from one to another, and now they're on a third property management company, which is kind of scary, but yeah. um, that in somewhere in between the first and the second, and they don't know which one, like $300,000 of rehab, like dollars got paid to companies, but the rehab work was not performed. Hmm. This is what I've heard. I don't know, I'm not involved in the deal, I heard this from someone who had invested in that deal and that their understanding what happened. I don't know. So I'm not saying any names or where the property was mm -hmm. or anything like that, but I, that's not the first time that I've heard of a story like that. I've known property. I've heard stories of property managers actually embezzling funds um, and saying that they've renovated units, but the units weren't actually renovated. And, you know, the, the part, property manager was partners with the, with the sponsor. They're the, both, they were co-sponsors and then, the sponsor finally went out to the property, hadn't been out to the property in like over a year, which I think is a big no-no right there, and went and looked at the property and went and looked at the units and they weren't renovated. And he was like, well, you said they renovated and there's a whole thing with attorneys and like, I mean, it was a big, big fiasco, right? So um, someone embezzled funds. So you just, uh, I think proper management right proper mm -hmm. project management making sure things are getting done <laughs> on budget on time and at good quality like actually verifying with your eyeballs 
um, is important, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. as a limited partner, as an investor, as a passive investor in these deals, there's only so much you can do, right? Mm -hmm. And unless, I mean, I live in Boston. Most of the stuff I, I don't invest in anything in Boston, in, in Massachusetts even. So for me, as a passive, it's very seldom that I'll actually get to go visit a property that I've invested in. Um, mm -hmm. But I know the people, you know, I've gotten to know and like and trust those syndicators. So I trust them. But I'm hoping the syndicators looking at it. I mean, I know for me, I visit all my properties quarterly, if not more, um, to make sure that things are running smoothly. And I often show up unannounced. So that the property management company doesn't know that I'm going to be there so that when I show up at 8 a.m. on a random Wednesday morning, and that, the, you know, the office is supposed to open at eight. The property <laughs> manager is out there at eight. I'm sitting in the parking um, lot. Yeah. And show up, looking at my watch and see what time they actually walk in the door. And then I'm making a phone call to the property management company, you know, and make sure the properties look good, trash is being picked up, things like that. Um, you know, the great thing about the world that we live in today, I mean, look, you and I were talking on Zoom, right? We, you could have Zoom calls, you could have conference calls, you can send videos, you could do walkthroughs and um, units and things like that, mm -hmm. all virtually, which is fantastic. It's awesome. But yeah. Face to face, in person uh, contact is important to have. You don't mm -hmm. need to have it on a day to day basis, but uh, I think you need to have it uh, on a consistent basis somewhat, somewhat frequently. Mm -hmm. What has been your favorite transaction or, or deal out of all of the ones you have been involved with? Um, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> Throw your curveball there. <laughs> done, yeah, I've never, you did because no one's asked me that question before. I've done, so what's going to be the second to last chapter of my book, I'm actually a quarter of the way done with that chapter, is a chapter about the most creative deal that I did. And uh, I'll give you a little preview on what that is. Um, but it's not like a large multifamily. Um, what it is, is I had a property um, in Brooklyn, New York, a duplex. This is the one I mentioned earlier that was sort of a house hack, right? I lived in one of the units uh, with my wife and we rented out the other unit. And subsequently, we've moved from New York, but we still own the property. And we rent out the second unit and we have a nice cash flowing asset. Um, part of the calculation in, in deciding to purchase that property was the possibility of some good land lift, good value lift on the property when the really disgusting vacant lot that was an abandoned boarded up KFC next door mm -hmm. would actually be purchased and turned into something, and um, which happened. And part of that was also the fact that we had additional development rights on our property, which could be sold to the other property, which, which is um, the slang term for that is air rights. So what we were able to do was sell actually like air, like nothing. And it's not like they can build over our property, which just these additional rights that we own that we were able to sell to the our next door neighbor. So they could build a little bit higher and uh, we were able to take that money and buy a six-unit multifamily, all cash, in Kansas City. Um, that is cash flowing wonderfully now, um, and we've done a value-add program there. 
Um, so we've increased our NOI and increased the value of the property significantly. But also we've been able to do a cash out refinance and take out a large amount of the capital for that and deploy that into other multifamily deals. So instead of the taxes that we would have paid on the money we got from the air rights, we've actually been able to defer those taxes through this 1031 exchange. We have then been able to do a cash out refinance, which is not a taxable event. So we get that cash out of the property that we own. Now, when we sell that property in Kansas City, we will need to either 1031 exchange it again, assuming 1031s are still around, mm. or we're gonna have to pay our tax bill at that point in time, right? But we've been able, and this is what I go into detail in the book, have more capital to deploy now, which will be able to grow more and more than cover our tax bill at the time that we do need to pay the taxes. Mm -hmm. And so our equity that we have locked up in that deal now in Kansas City is less than what our tax bill would have been had we paid our taxes. And so we actually had more capital. It took time to do this, but we actually ended up with more capital to deploy mm -hmm. into other multifamily deals than had we paid our taxes. Um, that first time, plus we own another property and we still own the original property in Brooklyn because we only sold development rights, not the property itself. So we still have that cash flowing asset. They'll have ownership. So it's a really cool, like we use like 15 million different techniques to try to put this together. We also, we're going to try to do a cost segregation study with bonus depreciation and throw that on top. But it turns out you can't do that. And I'll explain why. Hmm. in my book so there's no other to get the book. um but we we ended up not being i was i i think maybe i was getting a little too fancy and found out that we were running into a snag in in doing that um so but but anyway um it, it, it's probably the most creative deal i've done i mean beyond that um you know i'm my favorite deal is is probably my first deal just because like i had to wrestle that thing to the ground to get it <laughs> um, it was it was tough to get that deal, but we got it, and mm -hmm. then um, the rest is history, I guess. Um, yeah, so that's cool, and that deal's actually going full cycle right now. We're supposed to close in a couple of weeks, and our investors are really happy. We've we've done very nicely with that deal, um, so that's fun. Awesome! Wow. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Uh, when the book comes out, I want to know the title. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll get, give you the title and I'll send you a copy. I think you'll yeah. enjoy it. Same. Uh, so what are um, three tips that you will give um, that have helped you be successful? Sure. And, and just to get back on the title thing real quick. So yeah. I wanted to make sure that the whole book was written before I came up with the title, because what I found through writing the book is it's, it's, it's a bit different than what I thought it would be to begin with. So I want to wait until like it's all done and then go back and go, okay, what's the title of this thing now that it's kind of taken on a life of its own. So three things that I would say, um, you know, These are three things that have worked for me. And I think people are different. So, right, it depends on your personality. Um, but for me, um, persistence, okay? Persistence is something that allowed me to get that first deal. Like I was talking about wrestling that thing down to the ground. Um, you know, it took me two years to get my first multifamily deal as a syndicator, you know, under contract. So, so that's another thing, you know, uh, per persistence is important. Um, 
The other thing is attention to detail. Um, I'm ridiculously <laughs> uh, attention uh, detail oriented. Um, I I may have a slight mild case of OCD or something because that's just like how I am. I love spreadsheets and Excel and things like that. Um, and those details are really important when it comes to uh, underwriting deals. Um, and be very, very, very important. Little things can make a big, big difference. So that's very important. Um, and then the last thing, which is the most important thing in multifamily and in real estate and in business and in life is that it's all about relationships. Um, you know, it, like we said earlier, multifamily is a team sport, um, but I would not have gotten where I am if it wasn't for relationships. Every single deal I've ever done, um, I have leveraged relationships to one extent or another. I mean, even when, when I'm talking about flipping properties, I, I got a lot of those from a broker that I became friendly with, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. He also got paid commission and all of that. So, you know, it, it wasn't just like out of the kindness of his heart, but I had developed a business relationship with that person. You know, um, my initial house in, in Connecticut, well, I bought that because a really, really good friend of mine, um, very, very close friends of mine, you know, I spent a lot of time with them and they, one of them had parents that lived up near that house. and so we would go up there on the weekend sometimes. And then, I got to know their parents and the father was actually a real estate guy and he happened to sell property. It's whatever. It's a whole long story, but it's all about that relationship. You've the, the deals I've gotten are through relationships I have with brokers or with other sponsors or with property managers. It's, it's a relationship business. So, you know, go out there, make relationships, whether you're looking to be passive, if you want to be passive, a lot of deals are 506 B most of the deals I do are 506B, which requires me to have a substantive pre-existing relationship with the potential investor, right? Um, so as a passive, you need, but also as an active investor, you need relationships. You need to build those teams. So it's all about getting out there, networking, meeting people, being genuine and honest to who you are and what you're about. And I think that naturally, um, you know, at least at least for me, naturally, I just be myself and I talk to people and I tend to, you know, make friends. I mean, um, I'm not like the most friendly guy on the planet. I don't know. I don't have like this incredible charisma or anything like that. I'm just like a regular guy who's honest and, you know, pretty straightforward, I think, with my approach to life. So how can uh, people stay in contact with you? Oh, yeah. I mean, if anyone wants to get in, tr in touch with me, uh, you can go to my website, which is njppg.com. Um, I actually, on there, there's like a newsletter sign up and all kinds of stuff. And if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll be notified of, of when the book comes out. Or if you're listening to this and the book's already out, the book will be on there. Um, but uh, you can also email me directly. Uh, my email address is matt, M-A-T-T, at mjppg.com. So yeah, check, check out the website, shoot me an email. I love talking with people. We're going to be giving away a bunch of free books and things like that um, surrounding the launch and probably after launch of the book. So, you know, get on the newsletter. You'll find out about how you can get a free copy um, or, or purchase a copy if you want. And uh, yeah, I love, I love chatting with people, whether you have, 
zero doors or a million doors, you know, under your belt. Um, talking real estate is always very fun for me. We hope you enjoyed this interview and got some value out of it to help you in your real estate investing journey. If you can take just a minute, please do us a favor and leave a review. Hit the like button on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to our podcast on and subscribe so you can hear future episodes. Also, don't forget to check out our Real Estate Home Runs Podcast Community Facebook group where you are able to connect with some great listeners. If you're an investor who is crushing it and want to share some information centered around passive income in real estate, please contact us. Hit those home runs and we will see you next time.